Well, thank you so, so much. That means a lot to me. Good morning. How are you doing this morning? Awesome, awesome. So glad that you guys are here today. And I just want to give a shout out to Pastor Aaron and Nicole. I'm just so grateful for them. Um, And I kind of get a unique viewpoint because I kind of get to see the behind the scenes during the week of Grace Church and of what they do. And and let me just tell you, everything you see up on this stage and in the community and everything that they do, none of it is a show. Like all week long, they care so much about this church and they love each and every one of you so, so much. Um, But with that comes a lot of burden, right? Carrying kind of this church and leading this church forward. And so I'm so grateful that they get this opportunity um, to, to be able to take a vacation, take a break, and take a rest. And I'm also grateful for, for Aaron and Nicole just for this opportunity that they're allowing um, me to, to be on the stage this morning and to share with you. And not only that, but allowing um, people from the outside of this church to come in and share with us. That, that doesn't happen in every church, and it was so great last week to be able to hear from Stacia Glavis, the CEO of Brevard Rescue Mission, um, just to hear what's going on with her ministry and just reaching out to this community and, and really what, what they're doing for homeless women and children in this area. So that was amazing. Um, and I'm also grateful that, that I get a chance to share with you this morning, which brings me to the title of today's message, which is Seize the Opportunity. Because I do want to seize this opportunity. I don't take it for granted. And so I want to talk about something that, that every single one of us has in common. And I know that for a fact that, that every single one of us has dealt with this problem that, that I'm going to talk about today. And, and really every single person from the beginning of time, regardless of where or when they have lived, has dealt with this problem. And so if you're here this morning, it's going to apply to you. Um, and I'm, I'm going to take this opportunity to, to share about it. And the reason it kind of came to my mind and my heart is because probably about a month ago, I was, I was just doing my, my regular quiet time and I was reading through the book of Romans and I got to Romans chapter 7. And a few verses just, just really jumped off the page, just really came alive to me. And I kind of did this thing where like, as soon as I read it, I was like, like light bulb goes on, you know, and I grabbed my phone. It was early in the morning. I grabbed my phone and I immediately kind of started like typing in a mini sermon um, into my phone, into my notes. And I just knew immediately that this would need to be the next thing that I shared with you guys um, the next time I got an opportunity. So I'm so excited to, to get to share with you this morning. Um, and so we're going to jump to Romans chapter seven in just a few minutes. So if you have your Bible or a Bible app, you can turn there right now. That's kind of where we're going to camp out for most of today. Um, but before we get there, I want to share a story with you from, from when I was a kid, when I was growing up. And I was actually born and raised in Denver, Colorado. And so I'm, I'm a Midwest kid, and so we would go and camp in, in Nebraska, actually. Um, and there was this lake in western Nebraska called Lake McConaughey that we'd go every summer, uh, me and my dad and my brothers and all my cousins and uncles and aunts. And it was a, it was a big family camping trip. And I'm not talking like bringing an RV with a satellite dish. Like, no, this was like actual camping, like put a tent down, lay in the sleeping bag, no air mattress underneath the sleeping bag, like brushing our teeth with our fingers in the morning, washing our pots and pans in the lake, like real, real camping. Obviously, mom wasn't on these trips, otherwise those things would not have been okay. Um, but my brothers and my dad, we, we loved to do those things. So we had so much fun. Um, but I remember the first time that my youngest brother came with us. He was probably about five years old, and he was finally old enough to come on this camping trip with us. And so it's a couple-hour drive from, from Denver up to this lake in, in Nebraska. And so when we arrived, my brother hops out of the car, and the first thing he says to my dad is, Dad, I got to go to the bathroom. 
And my dad's answer was just so radically different from what it would have been had we been at home. Because he said, well, Chris, when we're outside camping, you just kind of, you know, go out into the forest, go behind some bushes, find a tree you like, and, and go for it, right? And so that's exactly what happens. Chris, Chris gets so excited, like his eyes go wide. He's like, I've been dreaming of this moment my entire life, and now you're telling me I get to pee outside? This is amazing. So he kind of goes out into behind the bushes, behind the trees. He finds the spot that he likes, and, and he's so excited, and my dad is kind of keeping an eye on him. And he goes, wait, Chris, Chris, stop. That's the girl's tree. <laughs> and so we had so much fun on those trips, and we would love just like catching frogs and telling ghost stories around the campfire. And it was such a fun time every single time we were there. Um, but we would also spend a lot of time out on the lake. And sometimes we'd get on my uncle's boat, or sometimes we would kind of swim. But, but other times, I think our favorite thing to do was actually to hang out on the shore and just kind of dig in that lake sand. Because I don't know if you've ever been to a lake and, and dug in the sand as a kid, but something about that sand is just so cool. It's different from our beach sand here, where like as you dig, like it's just so perfectly moldable, and you can kind of build things, and it's the perfect level of moisture, and it's just it's awesome sand. So we would build things and moats and dig and all sorts of stuff, but we would also do like competitions to see who could dig the deepest and the biggest hole. And this became a challenge because the deeper you get, some of you probably know this, that, that around a lake, like water starts rising up from the bottom of the, the hole you're digging. And so all of a sudden, like the sides are collapsing in and like everything's falling apart. Um, but so we would dig to see who could get the deepest and this water would start rising up from the bottom. And at first, like it's, like I said, the sides are collapsing in and at first it's like really dirty water. But the coolest part about it was if you took a step back and just waited a minute, it became like the clearest, most pure water you've ever seen. And as a kid, that blows your mind because you're like, I'm digging in dirt and water's coming out of this dirt and it's turning super clean and that doesn't make any sense to me. And if I'm honest, it actually still doesn't make any sense. But the sand would settle to the bottom and the water would become crystal clear. And so the reason I tell you that this morning is I think a lot of times in our faith and in our spiritual lives, we, we're kind of comfortable hanging out on the surface just hanging out on the shore, staying on the surface, because the moment we begin to dig and dive deeper, stuff starts to get messy, right? And we start to have to face some questions that we're not sure we know the answer to, and we're not sure that if we find the answer, we're going to like it. We're, we have to start asking questions about, about the difficult things of maybe, maybe what science is uncovering, does it really reconcile with Scripture and what the Bible says? Or we have to ask questions about, like, am I really willing to believe this, or is this just a fairy tale? Am I willing to give my life to this? Right? It starts to get messy when you start asking the deeper questions. The dirt kind of starts to fall and collapse into the hole. But then all of a sudden, when you take a step back for just a minute, and you just let Scripture rest in your soul, and you just take a moment to rest in God's truth, what happens is those questions start to fade away, and all of a sudden what you've got is this beautiful, clear picture of God. But here's the deal. If we're not willing to dig, God can never fill us up to the fullest capacity that he's going to. But if we dig deep, what happens is the water starts to rise up. And then when we rest in that truth, it starts to become crystal clear. And so this morning, I just want to pray over you. And I just want to pray directly from Ephesians chapter 3, a prayer that Paul prayed over the Ephesian church, because he prays that we would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And so would you pray with me this morning? God, we, we exalt you and we lift you up this morning. And God, our prayer this morning is just that you would give each and every one of us, together with all of your people, the power to grasp 
how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I don't know if you noticed, but we are actually in a movie theater this morning. If you didn't notice, I'm telling you, we're in a movie theater this morning. And have you ever realized that kind of when you go to the movies or when you watch a movie at home, most movies, regardless of genre, kind of follow the same general plot outline? Like, at the beginning, things are kind of good, and you get to know the characters, and then an impossible problem comes up, and then by the end, you have character transformation, and that problem is usually solved, unless there's going to be a sequel. So what happens if a problem is never introduced into the movie? Then you've got no story, right? Like, if the killer never shows up to the horror movie, then what you've got is just a bunch of young people having a great weekend at a cabin in the woods, right? <laughs> Nobody wants to watch that. If, if, if the villain never shows up in the superhero movie, you've just got people hanging out in tights for no reason, and nobody wants to watch that either. So for any of what I'm going to say to make sense today, we've got to get to the problem before we can figure out what the solution is. We've got to address the problem, and we're going to start digging, and it's going to get a little messy. But as we address this problem, we're going to eventually find the solution. And so in Scripture, the cool thing is, and, and really, this just blows my mind, because when you watch movies or read books or just the stories that we love, you'll find these, these themes kind of from Christianity that you'll notice there. You'll be like, is that director or that writer like a Christian? They have to be, because like that was so clearly Jesus, right? And, and I think what God is doing is he's telling his story in so many different ways. Because if you look at Scripture, it actually follows the same general idea, right? In the beginning, it is good. For each of six days, God creates something, and then he takes a step back, and he looks at it, and it's good. So in the beginning, things are good, but an impossible problem arises, right? But if the New Testament is true, what we have is the ability for character transformation, right? The old is gone, the old has passed away, and the new has come. And so we get character transformation that allows this problem to be solved, and so the problem that each and every one of us face this morning, this universal problem that has afflicted every human since the beginning of time, this problem is sin, this problem that has risen up against us. And so we've got to define it. And in the simplest terms, sin is simply to, to miss the mark, to aim one direction and to, get, to hit somewhere else. Sin is simply falling short of what we were created for. Sin is to, to break the law that God has given to us. And the Bible even gives more concrete, more specific descriptions of sin. And if you read in the book of Hosea and Isaiah in the Old Testament, or even if you read some of the teachings of Jesus, he'll liken sin to an unfaithful marriage, right? Where, where we've made a covenant with God, but then we've turned our attention a different way. And we've become like an unfaithful bride. And the Bible also paints sin as rebellion. And maybe the greatest theologian of the past century, C.S. Lewis, he describes this as, as rebellious traitors waging war against the God that created them, right? We're picking up our weapons and going to war as if we are enemies of God. And so hopefully this, this paints a picture. Hopefully we can agree that sin is a really big problem. This is a big deal. But then we get to this Romans 3 idea that the wages of sin is death. And if we're honest, that doesn't always sit right with us because if God is this kind and gracious and loving and merciful God that we know and love and trust, then 
sin and death don't really mesh with this God, right? How does this fit into his plan? And so here's the deal. Yes, we want God to be kind and gracious. That's part of who he is, but that's not all he is. And we also need God to be more than that. So point number one, we've got to understand that God is holy, God is just, and God is good. So yes, he's kind and gracious, but he's also holy, just, and good. And please remember those words this morning because those are going to be important later. So remember those words, holy, just, and good. And let's go back to to the metaphor of an unfaithful marriage. And just imagine for a minute, a husband finds out that that his wife has been unfaithful to him. And imagine that that wife comes home. She knows that he knows. It's out in the open. They're fully aware of what's going on. She comes home, and he smiles and says, Hey, honey, hope you had an awesome day. And he gives her a big hug and just completely acts like nothing is different. Well, he might be being really kind and gracious, but that relationship is going to crumble all around them, right? Because he was, he was not strong enough. He was not being just. He was not being a good husband. He was not willing to step up and confront the problem. So their, their relationship is going to crumble, not just because she was unfaithful, but also because he was weak, right? Or let's imagine, let's imagine the, the traitor picking up their weapons to go to war against their creator. So let's imagine this, this idea of a traitor joining the side of the enemy, And can you imagine a soldier that that leaves his own army to join the enemy, but has a change of heart after a while, so he comes back to his original battalion, and he comes back. Can you imagine a commander that just pats him on the back and says, hey man, welcome back, so glad you're here. Don't let that happen again, but, but really glad that you're here. No, that would be like absurd, right? Because lives are on the line, and so we need that commander to be more than just kind and gracious. He also needs to be holy, to be just, to be good. Or let's extend this out even a little bit further. Imagine a judge in a criminal court that just proclaims every single defendant innocent just because he's a kind or nice or gracious guy. Or imagine a teacher that's unwilling to give out bad grades or discipline to students just because they're kind and gracious. Like, this would not fly. This, this would not be okay. Kind and gracious is not enough. We also need God to be holy, to be just, and to be good. And so if we want a God who we can trust in relationship, if we want a God who we can trust to lead us into every battle that we face day by day, if we want a God whose judgment we trust above all things, and if we want a God that we can trust to teach and to lead us, then our God has to be holy, to be just, and to be good. Even though he's gracious and kind, he can't just be gracious and kind. So here's the deal. God can't just simply overlook sin anymore then a judge can simply overlook murder. It's not in his character. And so because this is who God is, what he does as an overflowing of that is he actually creates law. He creates order. He creates commandments and rules. And and for a lot of people, they'll come and say, well, that's why I don't really want to be a part of Christianity because they're just trying to stop me from having fun. Right? And so let's dive into that a little bit. Because if God doesn't create laws, guess what? Things stop running the way that they're supposed to. And so God, God creates laws both for the physical world around us, but also for our morality and for our social um, behavior. And so what God does is he creates, let's, let's imagine the law of gravity. Imagine the law of gravity doesn't exist, and I'm starting to float off the ground. That would be really cool, but just continue with me here. The things in your cup holders are starting to float to the air. But, but what happens is, like, that sounds cool and fun and enjoyable and sci-fi and awesome, but what happens is all of a sudden the earth is no longer in the rotation of the sun, and then life itself ceases to exist. And so what happens is God creates law 
He creates order to preserve life and to keep things running the way that they're supposed to. And so with this moral law, with these commandments, with this structure and standard that God has built for us, God has created it to preserve life. God has created it for good. God has created it to keep things running the way that they're supposed to. And so without the law, there's no life. And so here's the deal. When we break that law, when we miss the mark, when we fall short, we actually disturb that order. We're going against the law. Imagine if you could just snap your fingers and turn off gravity. Well, life would cease to exist, right? So when we break the law morality of morality, life ceases to exist. And it's a little bit of a slower process, but when that law is broken, when that order is disturbed, when things stop running the way that we're supposed to because we're not abiding by that law, God has to be the judge that maintains the order that he created. So of course the wages of sin is death. The same way the wages of turning off gravity is death. The wages of sin has to be death. There can be no other way. But here's one more way of looking at it. Imagine sin as us picking up our weapons to declare that we think we are gods, that we think we deserve glory, we deserve honor, we deserve our own attention. And so we're going to focus on ourselves more than we're going to focus on others. We're going to focus on ourselves more than we focus on God. And we've decided that we're going to pick up our weapons of war and we're going to go to a war of independence to declare our independence from God. And here's the deal. With this sinful war, we're willing to fight to the death. And so this problem is crucial. This problem is life and death. And so knowing all of this, the Apostle Paul writes Romans chapter 7. And honestly, he's going through a bit of a personal crisis. And I just love the vulnerability in the passage we're about to read. Because he so desperately wants to choose life. He so desperately wants to choose to live the way that God created him to live. But he's struggling with it, just like every one of us. And so in Romans chapter 7, verse 19, he says, I want to do what is good, but I don't. And I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. See, I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that's at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. And he just cries out. You can just see his, his pain and his burden in this. He cries out, oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? And so this is all of our crisis this morning that we want to live the way we were created. We want to step into that, that purpose that God has created us for. But like Paul, so often we feel like we never stand a chance, right? That we are slaves to the sin that's inside of us and that it's out of our control. And so Paul digs deeper. He wants to go deeper and it's going to get messy, but he wants to go deeper because he wants to ask the question, why does this sin even exist? Why is it even here? What's the point of all this? If God created a good world and said it is good, then what? How did this arrive on the scene? Why is sin even here in the first place? And he goes even one step further and he asks the question, God, why did you give us commandments? Why did you give us law? Why does all this exist? If you just knew we were going to fail, then what's even the point? Right? Gravity just keeps running constantly. You can't turn off gravity. Gravity, you don't have to do anything to keep it running. It just works because God keeps it working. So why are these other laws so different? Why do we have to uphold them? Why do we fail at them so often? 
And Paul's burden is it almost just feels like these laws just exist to give a name to the ways that I fail, to the ways that I mess up. And so he's struggling. And we're going to actually go back to, to towards the beginning of Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 7. And he, you can imagine him throwing up his hands and he says, what should we say then? Is the law sin? But his answer is absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. And sin, seizing an opportunity. So have you ever had an opportunity that's too good to pass up? Maybe something in your business, or, or maybe you had a chance to, to switch majors at, at school. Maybe you had an opportunity that was so good to pass up, and that's why you moved to Melbourne in the first place. That's why you're here. Maybe it was the last vacation you took or something you crossed off of your bucket list. We've all had opportunities that were too good to pass up. Well, I had a friend years and years ago that he was in a committed relationship, but he allowed himself to get into a situation where he was, he was alone with another girl who was not his girlfriend, and he ended up sleeping with this girl. And you know what he told me after that? He said, in the moment, it just felt like too good of an opportunity to pass up. Right? And see, if he had taken a minute to think that through, he would have realized there's no way this is worth destroying the trust in my relationship. Right? He would have realized God has called me to a higher standard than this. But you know in the moment why it felt like too good of an opportunity to pass up? Because sin always seizes the opportunity. And see, this is a problem for us. Because sin always seizes the opportunity whereas we only sometimes seize opportunities, right? Sometimes an opportunity is too good to pass up and we jump head on, but sometimes an opportunity kind of lacks luster and, and we're not real passionate about it, so it's just, we're going to let that one go by and we'll get the next one, right? But sin doesn't work that way. Sin always seizes the opportunity. And so here's the problem for us. The devil is probably working on our, harder on our spiritual lives than we are because the devil doesn't let opportunities pass him by, but we do all the time. How often do you think, man, I really should read my Bible. Man, I really should pray about this right now. Man, I really should help that person. But then instead we, we feel like doing something else or, or we, just, we just don't really think that we can actually make a difference. So we, we let it pass us by. We don't seize the opportunity. And I, I, I can feel this. I, I can feel this within me. I can relate to Paul so, so well on this because I know the times that that I should do something for good, and I know the times I shouldn't do something bad, but it just seems like, right, there's something within us that's controlling us that leads us to do what we don't want to do, right? And so we know we should read scripture, but there's that new show on Netflix, and I haven't seen that before, but I already know what's in the Bible, right? Or we don't, we don't feel like praying right now because we just have too much to do. Maybe for you, it, you know you're supposed to be hanging out with your wife and kids, but Drinking with your buddies just sounds like way more fun. Maybe you don't think you should be watching that show, but it's just too entertaining, so you're going to anyway. What could it really hurt? Or young people, maybe you don't think you should listen to your parents because they just need to get with it. So even though you know that you should, it's just hard. Or, or maybe you know that you shouldn't watch those things on your computer, but you just can't seem to turn it off. You can't stop. You shouldn't, you shouldn't judge that person because you really have absolutely no idea what's going on in their life that's making them act that way, but, 
But if I can judge them, then I feel a lot better about myself. And I know I shouldn't gossip, but my friends really need to know this one, right? I know I shouldn't hook up with that person, but what could one night really affect? And all of a sudden, without us really even realizing what happened, sin has gotten inside of us. It's deceived us, it's taken advantage of the opportunity given to it by the commandment, and now all of a sudden it's inside of us. And so there's this sin inside of us that's controlling us from the inside, and we just don't know what to do. We don't know how to get out. We don't know how to be healed. We don't know how to find freedom because we're stuck, and it's inside of us, and it just happens so fast, and we have no idea what to do about it. And this is the struggle we face. This is the struggle that has been faced since the beginning of time. And so Paul continues in Romans 7, verses 8 through 11, and he says, And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting, of every kind. See, he's saying that God said, you shall not covet. And so the enemy comes in and he makes it so we can only think about coveting, right? Before we weren't thinking about coveting. We might not have even known what coveting was, but as soon as God said, don't covet, the enemy comes in and says, you want to covet, right? So he produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life again and I died. The commandment that was meant for life, don't miss that, the commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. And see here, Paul is referring to, to a specific event that we all share in common. And so we're going to go to the very beginning of Scripture, to Genesis chapter 2 and see, how did this all happen? Where does this all come from? When did sin deceive me this way? And in Genesis 2, verses 8 and 9, it says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Down to verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So we're going to go ahead to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, to see what happens next. And now the serpent, who represents these ping pong balls here, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, and neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. So did you see it? Did you see sin seize the opportunity? See, if you're, if you're new to church or if you're new to this faith, this is actually the moment that we believe that sin first entered our world. This is the moment where, where sin got inside of us and where the good world that God had created started to go south. 
But let's take a step back and let's be clear about something because as far as I know, eating fruit isn't sin, right? I mean, maybe it's not keto and they should have stuck to raw vegetables, but eating fruit is not a sin. And so do we really expect to believe that the reason our world is broken, the reason that we have all this hatred and terrorism and, and sexism and racism and the reason that, that I often feel disconnected from God or the reason that we feel broken, the reason I feel inadequate, the reason that everything is so messed up, the reason you turn on the news and get so many bad stories, the reason all of this is so wrong is because a couple people ate a piece of fruit. Right? This doesn't make any sense. And so how, if this isn't even a sin, how can this be the sin that ruined everything? Because God gave a commandment. And what does sin do when God gives a commandment? Sin seizes the opportunity. And see, here's the deal. Why, why would God even give that commandment in the first place if he knew what would happen? God knew this was the result. God knew they were going to eat that, that fruit. He knew the whole time. So, so why give the commandment if it was destined to fail? Why does he always give a commandment? To keep order, right? To keep things running the way that they're supposed to. And here's what God knew that Adam and Eve didn't know, is that if they ate of that tree, then they would be like God, and they would start thinking they were gods, and they would start idolizing themselves, and they would start focusing on themselves so much. Who can relate to that, right? Like, we are so focused on ourselves because we've decided that we are gods, that we are worth worship, and guess what? We don't need God anymore because we can handle everything ourselves. So God knew that eating of that tree wasn't just eating a piece of fruit. Eating of that tree was actually picking a weapon to go to war against God. And here's the deal. Adam and Eve no longer could fulfill their purpose because everything had changed now. God had created them to be in relationship with him. And now everything has changed because they've decided they don't need him anymore. And so we can't miss this. The commandment is not the reason for the sin, but the commandment gave the opportunity for the sin, right? The commandment was given for good. The commandment was given to preserve life. That's why God creates all laws. And Paul even says this. This is the last verse we'll read in Romans chapter seven. He says, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Remember those words? Like the judge, like the school teacher, like the commander, like the faithful husband? Holy and just and good. See, the commandment was there to help Adam and Eve. It was there for them to fulfill their purpose, to live lives that were so full of God that they were abundantly pleased, that they were abundantly joyful, that their lives were so full and joyful in relationship with Christ. That was the life they were supposed to live. But they chose instead to turn away from God because the commandment created an opportunity and sin seized the opportunity. And where sin seized the opportunity, the enemy was able to manipulate and to deceive them. And so here's what happened, and here's the fruits of, of, of all that, which has happened from, from through generations. Point number three, what was good became sin and death. What God intended to be good was manipulated and we were deceived and it actually became sin and death, right? The wages of sin is death. So this is the reason everything has gone wrong. And if we're honest, this feels a little hopeless because now this sin is inside of us and we've dealt with it for all of our lives and, and how do we turn it off? There's no way to stop it, right? And it just comes so fast and so easily and without even noticing, sin has gotten inside of us. And so we feel stuck. We feel like we're in an impossible, hopeless situation 
And honestly, now this, this message is only hurting that because now we can understand that even God's own plan for good backfired. So if even he can't figure out how to do it, then what, what can we do? Right? Because the enemy took God's plan for good and for life and actually turned it on its head. And now it's sin and death. So what was good became sin and death. In fact, the only one who was truly good became sin and death. The only one who ever walked on this earth and faced every kind of temptation and deception that we face on a daily basis and yet stayed good, the only one who actually knew no sin became sin and became death. The only one who didn't deserve the wages of sin took the punishment for all of us. So here's why God created that tree in the first place. Here's why the tree of knowledge of good and evil was placed in the midst of that garden. Because the plan was never for us to remain perfect. Only he can do that. The plan was always Jesus. And Jesus is the only one who can fully be good. And so here's the gospel story. The son of God actually leaves his perfect throne in heaven and comes down to the earth. He becomes a human. He becomes a part of his creation, just like a painter stepping into his painting. And he actually becomes a human, meaning now he faces all the same attacks that we've faced. He faces the same temptation, the same deception, the same lies. The enemy comes against him and is throwing these weapons and these lies at Jesus, but he is the only one that never allows it to get inside. He is the only one that remained perfect because he's fully man, yes, but he's also fully God. But now, see, here's the deal. Jesus got to see it firsthand. He got to become one of us so that he could see what we go through, and he got to see the way that the enemy has manipulated things. He got to see firsthand the way that the enemy took what was meant for life, what was meant for good, and turned it into sin and death. And so I love this so much. Do you know what Jesus does? Number four, Jesus seizes the opportunity. See, Jesus knows if the enemy, in his limited power, can take what was good and meant for life and turn it into sin and death, then you better believe our infinite God, our infinite Jesus, can take what was sin and death and turn it into life. He can restore all things, right? Because Jesus actually became sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin became sin so that we can become the righteousness of God. And so he actually became sin. He actually took death. He took the very weapons of the enemy and he restored order. And so now here's what happens. Order is being restored because Jesus has come and said, we're not going to do things that way anymore. I'm changing everything and an exchange is happening. And so he actually becomes the weapons that the enemy used against us and he's restoring things. He's letting us go back to the beginning before all this junk happened. He's letting us go back to before all of this happened against us. And we get to start over and he gets to fill us up. But, but watch this. If we're not filled up all the way, the sin stays right where it is. But he comes in his perfection and in his beauty, and he dies the death that we deserved. And when he dies that death, he also gives us his Holy Spirit. And so we are completely filled up with God. And once we're completely filled with God, guess what? The sin, the shame, the regret, the deception, the lies, even the weapons that we picked up to use against him, they are all gone. They fade away. And so now what has happened? An exchange. A transformation. 
where we surrender to God and we say, we've got all this stuff inside of us, but when we surrender to you and when we can be filled up with you, everything changes. But here's the deal. There's still some ping pong balls sitting on the top. Because guess what? Sin doesn't go away. Sin's still going to be around you. Sin's still going to try to come against you. The enemy is still going to try as hard as he can to come against you. But guess what? He can push as hard as he wants, and it might feel like he's getting in there a little bit, but it always floats right back to the top. And then we go right back to God, and we say, Jesus, I need you. Holy Spirit, fill me. God, I need you. Fill me up again. And guess what? They float right back to the top, to the outside, to the surface, where they can't get inside of you anymore. The enemy's weapons no longer stand a chance, so guess what? What the enemy took, what was good, to turn to sin and death, Jesus has now taken sin and death, and he's turned it back to what was good. God's plan never failed. God's plan never missed a moment. And so today might be your day. Today might be your opportunity to start brand new. Because now when God looks at you, guess what? He doesn't see this stuff anymore. Because he saw that stuff on his son as he died on that cross. And when Jesus died on that cross, he became your sin, meaning that when he died, your sin died. But then he rose again to reign in power. But guess, guess what? Your sin stayed in that tomb. And so now when God looks at you, an exchange has happened. And in you, he sees the perfection of his son. In you, all he sees, if you accept Christ into your life, is a beloved, perfectly clean, restored son or daughter. Because Jesus took your penalty for you. And so this morning might be a brand new start for you. Today might be the day that everything changes for you, that you want to say, I'm tired of all this junk. I'm tired of being deceived. I'm tired of all the things going wrong. I'm tired of everything being messed up, and I just can't do the things I want to do. If you want a brand new start, today might be the day where you can say, God, I can't do this on my own, but I know that if you fill me up, everything will change. And so this morning, if that's you, and if you want to accept Christ into your life, to come and fill you up, to get all of that out, would you just raise your hand? to say, I want a brand new start. I want to follow God. I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that he can fill me up and I can be pure and I can be chosen and forgiven and accepted and free. And if that's you this morning, would you just raise your hand? Say, I'm, I want to be one with Jesus. I want to be filled with him. Thank you so much. Or maybe you kind of feel like you're, you're filled halfway and all the sin is still kind of in there and you have a relationship with God, but but if you're honest, it's kind of halfway. And I know I feel like this all the time. It's, it's just kind of halfway filled. You, you've got some of Jesus, but you've also got some other stuff that's coming in there and, and, and taken up in your body, right? So if that's you this morning and you want a brand new start and you want to say, man, I, I just need to be totally filled up, would you just raise your hand this morning? I want to be completely filled up with God. Amen. Well, I'm going to pray over you. And as I pray, there's nothing specific or special about my words, but, but God sees and hears your heart. So would you pray along with me? He sees that you want a brand new start. He sees that you want to be filled with him. And so would you just pray with me? God, we love you and we honor you and we thank you. God, we, we repent for ever picking up those weapons to go against you. We repent from ever being unfaithful or guilty before you. But God, we know a brand new start is ahead of us. God, we know you are changing everything and we trust you that you are the only one that can make us totally and completely clean. We know you are the only one that can wash it totally away. And so God, we place our trust in you and we surrender to you this morning. God, we're no longer going to war against you. Instead, we're bowing down before you, 
pledging our allegiance before you, telling you that you are the only one that can lead us. You are the only one that can guide us. You are the only one deserving of us giving our lives for you because you gave your life for us and changed everything. So God, we lift you up, we exalt you, and we honor you. And we give you all the glory, God. God, would you fill us up so full of your Holy Spirit that there's no room for anything else. God, and let our lives overflow with power to impact those around us and to change the world around us. God, we just love you so much. We glorify you and we honor you. We lift up your holy name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. So if that's you this morning, if you, if you decided you want to be completely full, would you just let us know that at gracechurch.life because we want to walk that out with you. This is a journey meant to be lived together. So just let us know. And we've got some resources for you at the Connection Center in the lobby as well. But other than that, would you just stand to your feet? And we're just going to sing as we close to just declare that we do surrender to God, that we lay it all before him and we trust him.